0: Let's pray together. O Lord, into this time and place speak to us, and give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe, minds to understand, all that you have for us. And in seeing it, let what happened in Luke 24 happen to us when Jesus opened the scriptures. Their hearts were burnings, and their minds were open to understand the scriptures, and to see that it was all testifying to you. Do that work in us so that we would not sit distractedly, but our hearts would be burning as we begin to connect the dots and see the shadows in this story that point us to Jesus, that through it we might be drawn to you. This is the purpose of all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Today we are continuing in this series that we've started called Shadows, where we are looking to see the different stories in the Old Testament and see Jesus in and through the stories of the Old Testament. We're only two weeks in, and I have to tell you I'm already loving this series, and I hope that you are too. If you were here last week, you heard as Binu preached for us and preached about the Adam that God had created and how he was paving the way for the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And this week we're in another story that I'm positive most of you, if not all of you, have some familiarity with. Uh, A story that I have to tell you that I have heard countless times before, too many times to count, and yet I'm uh, overflowing with excitement because I feel like I've read it for the first time this week and seen in this very familiar story some things I have never seen before. The story is found in Genesis chapter 4. So you've got a Bible in front of you. You've got to leave it open to Genesis 4 because that's where we're going to be parked for the rest of our time this morning. But what I want to do is I actually want to start by just reading you one verse from Genesis 3. So Genesis 3 verse 15 is the verse that I'm going to read for you. And, And here's sort of the setup. Genesis 1 and 2 is God creating everything. The man and the woman and the world and everything's good. Genesis 3, what we looked at last week, is the fall. They rebel, they sin, everything is broken and destroyed. And in Genesis 3, verse 15, is this promise that God makes. I mean, literally, just moments after everything is broken, God steps into the brokenness and gives this prophecy or this promise. And here's the promise, Genesis 3, verse 15... He says to the serpent, he's going to speak to the Eve, Eve and Adam and the serpent, and this is what he says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here, here's the promise. Moments after the fall, God steps in and he makes a promise and he says to the serpent, listen, I'm going to put enmity between you and between the woman. So there's going to be this strife. You're going to be opponents. And then he says, and it's not just going to be a battle between you two. It's going to be between a line that comes from you and a line that comes from her pay attention to that, that there's going to be seed from the serpent or offspring a line of people that trace their roots back to the serpent and a line of people that trace their roots back to the woman and this enmity is not just between the woman and the serpent, but between her offspring and the serpent's offspring and then it says, but he, notice there. there's a singular but that there is one particular offspring, one particular seed one particular one that's coming and that one is going to do battle with the serpent. And the serpent is surely going to inflict a mortal wound to his heel. But he is going to stomp on the serpent's head. And so what Genesis 4, Genesis 3 verse 15 does, is it gets you waiting for this one child. What Genesis 3 15 does, is it gets you waiting for a pregnancy. Like you're just reading the text waiting to see someone gets pregnant because there's this promise of a child that's coming that's going to undo what the serpent had done and undo what sin introduced into the world. And so you read Genesis 3.15 following going, someone's got to get pregnant so that there can be this seed, this offspring, this child from the woman. And you keep that in your mind when you get to Genesis 4.1 and it says, now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. Saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. you got to put that together. Because Genesis 3.15 has you waiting for somebody's got to get pregnant. And Genesis 4.1 starts with Eve's pregnant. Eve's pregnant. And Eve's pregnant. And And, and remember, this is the very first time this is happening. This has never happened before. And so you got to imagine this couple as Eve's belly begins to grow. Counting the days. I guess it's not days then counting the weeks, I guess it's not going to happen in weeks, counting the months, and now nine months later, she gives birth to the very first human being ever born into the world. Right? The very pattern of the rest of us. This is the first human being ever born, and she names him Cain. Cain is this Hebrew word that sounds like acquired or gotten him. What she says is, I've gotten him with the help of the Lord. In fact, one translator says, it's almost as if she's named him. Here he is. I've gotten him. Here he is. So put these things together with me. God has promised that there is coming from the woman a seed, a child. One child that is going to undo what the serpent did. He promises he's coming. She has Cain and she names him. Here he is. So what's Cain in Eve's mind? I mean, every new parent has certain aspirations and hopes for their baby, but Eve's got hopes for this child like no one on the face of the earth has ever had hope. Because God has said, he's coming, and she literally holds up this baby and says, here he is. I've gotten him. You see the hope that she has in this baby? And oh, how wrong she will be. Because look at verse 2. And again she bore his brother, so now she has a second son. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. So these two boys grow up. One becomes a farmer, one becomes a shepherd. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Now, this is one of the most perplexing parts of the story. It's not that it's hard to understand. You know what happens. You're just not sure why it happens, right? You know exactly what happens. What happens is plain to see. Both these brothers come to God in worship. And both these brothers don't come empty-handed, but come to God with a gift as they come in worship. Both bring an offering to the Lord in worship. So both of them are saying to God with this gift, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for what you've done for me. Thank you for how you've prospered me and blessed me and blessed those around me. Here is a token of my thanksgiving to you. And so they both bring an offering. And what we read is, for Abel and his offering God has regard. But for Cain and his offering, he has no regard. And the question you've got to be thinking as you're sort of reading this, you're scratching your head going, why? Why did God have regard for one and not for the other? Does God like shepherds over farmers? Does God like lamb chops over salad? Is it that he's, uh, he likes meat rather than vegetables? What is it about this that makes him choose the one and not the other? And in fact, I want you to know, biblical scholars have spilled much ink in trying to answer that question. Written many volumes in trying to address what happened here. Because there's nothing that jumps out from the text. And in some ways, that's sort of the point. The point is that if you and I were standing there when they offered their offerings, we would have been just as perplexed as Cain was as to why God showed acceptance for one and his offering and not for the other and his offering. And yet, we're given just a subtle hint in verse 3. Look again with me at verse 3. It says, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. It's almost as if the text is saying, Cain brought some of his stuff, and Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and some of the fat portions. It's almost as if the text subtly goes out of its way to give you some details about Abel's gift. Some details about what he brings for offering. So it adds words like, it was the firstborn. It was the fat portions. The firstborn is referenced throughout the rest of scripture to say, look, what he gave was not the scraps that he had left over. After all his consuming was done, after he met all his needs, he gave the scraps that he had left over. The implication is almost like that's what Cain did. He looked at all the stuff he had and he grabbed some of the scraps and he brought it to the Lord. But Abel gave. Abel gave in such a way that he was giving the very first at risk to the fact that this might be his livelihood. He doesn't know if there's more coming. And he gives the first of his flock. He, he's the kind that looks at his budget and says the first amount goes to God and I'll figure out what to do with the rest. This is the kind of offering that Abel brings. It's his firstborn. And then it even adds these phrases of the fatty portions. Now, we're health-conscious Americans, so we read that, and that detail makes no sense to us. But I want to ask you, where's all the taste in food? Have you ever eaten fat-free food? Right? That's why it tastes like cardboard. It tastes like you're chewing sawdust. We all know fat-free food is terrible food. Because all the taste in food is in the fatty portions. So whenever it says that in the Old Testament, it's, it's a way of saying, listen, God doesn't get your scraps. He gets the very best, choicest portion. And that's the stuff that Abel brings. And here's the point. Though outwardly we would see nothing in their offerings that would distinguish one from the other, God sees past what's in their hands to what's in their heart. Cain plays religion, like so many of us play religion. Cain goes, God, here's some stuff. You should be happy with this. Abel worships with sacrifice and with joy. Cain is practicing empty religion. Abel is worshiping God. Cain gives God the scraps and the leftovers. Abel gives his first and his best. And God, in their giving, sees past what's in their hands into what's in their hearts. And in the very next scene, we actually get to see what God has already seen. We get a glimpse into Cain's heart. Look at verse 5. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So here's what happens. God has regard for Abel and his offering. He has no regard for Cain and his offering. And Cain grows angry. I mean, boiling over mad. His insides are boiling. It comes out and it's showing on his face. And he is angry. And even here... God is extending mercy to this person and inviting him and pleading with him to do the right thing. It's like a a husband who brings home some cheap flowers to his wife and says, well, you should be happy. I I at least got you something. And every wife would have her arms crossed and go off to a corner and be completely justified not even to speak to him. But this is one who comes and pleads back with that giver and says, you can still do the right thing. There's still time. And so that's what God says here. Cain, even now, it's not too late. If you do what's right, won't you be accepted? It's it's not over. It's not done. There's still time. Do what's right and you'll be accepted. He pleads with Cain. He invites Cain to do what's right. There's still time to do what's right. And then he gives him, though, a sober warning. And that is, Cain, listen, though. If you don't do what's right right now, I'm telling you, sin is crouching at the door and its desires for you and you must master it. Commentators add wonderfully that this picture of sin here is like a wild beast that's poised and ready. And I I tell you, for me this week, that image has served me so incredibly well all throughout. It's been tattooed in my brain, even as I've faced temptations of my own throughout this week to think of sin that way. Listen, for many of us, we think of sin like this harmless, innocuous, sort of, you know, insignificant thing. We think of it as sort of, you know, a mistake here or a mishap or a misstep. It's just a a small little error, right? We we see sin and we, we ask ourselves things like, you know, what's so big about a little gossip or a little bitterness or a little anger or a little lust? It's almost like we feel like we can tame those things and manage those things. A, a little anger never hurt anyone. A little lust never killed anyone. It's like a little pet that we think that we can tame. And, and Genesis is saying, are you kidding? You know what sin is like? I saw a movie called The Grey. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's with Liam Neeson. It's the story of this group of men that have this plane crash and are now in this wilderness where there's just this pack of wolves hunting them and I don't know how they did it but those wolves look like the most ferocious beasts I have ever seen and that's the image that keeps coming into my mind all this week as I think about what's crouching at the door of my heart not this slight small misstep it's like a panting raving foaming beast that hasn't eaten in a week, that just wants to get at my soul and rip it to shreds. That's what's crouching at the door of your heart. Or or if you were to use the analogy of Genesis 3, it's like a serpent, like a cobra waiting at the front door, spring-loaded and ready to snap and strike and flood your heart with poison. That's what's waiting at the door of your heart. That's what God says is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, and you must master it. And so God invites, do the right thing. God pleads, do the right thing, you'll be accepted. God warns, but it has no effect. Cain's heart is hard, and it just bounces right off. And you see what happens next. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, And killed him. He kills his brother. And that word is used seven times in this short story. So as to highlight over and over again. This is his brother. His brother. Not a stranger. Not an enemy. This is his brother. He just killed his brother. The first human being ever to come from the womb of man. Has killed His brother. In fact, the text adds details like Cain waits till they're out in the open field. Details we would just gloss over. But here's the thing. Remember, Moses is the one writing the book of Genesis. He's writing to the people of Israel, telling them their story, their history. And when he says this little detail about open field, immediately they would have gotten that. Because in their own laws, they know that a crime committed in the open field was the crime of the worst kind. Because what What that meant meant was that that this wasn't wasn't some some kind kind of momentary action. action. This This wasn't some kind of temporary insanity. insanity. This This wasn't wasn't a crime of passion. This wasn't a a bad judgment call. This This was was premeditated. This was planned. This was was plotted. plotted. A murder or rape out in the open field where no one could hear and no No one one could could see meant that that you didn't just spring into this by accident. This was something you had plotted. You had planned this. You had brooded over this. You had waited for just the right moment when you could get him far away from everyone else where no one would hear his scream and no one would see his blood and you were going to do it. But what no eye saw, God saw. And what no ear heard, God heard. And just like he steps into the garden in Genesis 3 to ask questions of this new sinner, he steps in to ask Cain. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me From the ground God shows up and he says Cain where's your brother and this is when you begin to see what that wild beast standing at the door of Cain's heart did to him I mean it has shred up his heart so that it's like there's nothing in there it's like there's an empty space in his chest there's no remorse no regret no breaking down no weeping what have I done I'm so sorry I can't believe it There's just this cold, flippant, glib answer. I don't know where he is. Am I his babysitter? Am I supposed to watch him? Am I his keeper? And God responds with the same exact question that he asked Eve just a chapter ago What have you done? What have you done? And then he says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. It's this great phrase. It's almost as if the blood has taken on a person. He says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And listen, what is that blood crying out? It's crying out, justice. Give me justice. It's as if the blood is saying, listen, wrong was done to me. You've got to make this right, God. This was wrong, God. Make it right, God. Give me justice. And in fact, throughout the rest of Scripture, the blood of Abel is a phrase that's used over and over again to describe every innocent victim that deserves justice. Throughout the rest of Scripture, whenever you have an innocent victim that demands, that deserves justice, it's the blood of Abel is referenced. Because this blood is crying out to God saying, This was wrong. Make it right. Evil was done to me. You, you've got to give me justice here. And so there stands Cain. He's now a murderer and a liar. And, and if you know the Bible, if you've read through the New Testament, that combination of qualities, murderer and liar springs to your mind because those are the same phrases Jesus uses to describe the ancient serpent when he talks about the devil he says you know what the devil is the devil is a murderer and a liar and and those are the same qualities you find in Cain and then suddenly things start to click and you realize Genesis 3 said that there would be a line that comes from the woman and a line that comes from the serpent and Eve held up Cain and said here he is and yet, he looks just like the serpent. Rather than being the one, he has proved to be the seed of the serpent. He's not the one, he's the farthest thing from the one. He's the seed of the serpent. And in fact, we know that because of what God says next. Look at verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Hear this. Just one chapter prior in Genesis 3, when God addresses the man and the woman and the serpent, he curses the ground and he tells Eve there's going to be pain in childbirth, but he never curses them. The only character and person he curses in chapter 3 is the serpent. And yet now in chapter 4 to Cain, he says, and now you are cursed from the ground. That just like the serpent one chapter prior, now it's Cain who is cursed. Just like the serpent. And he says to him, listen, you have filled the ground with your brother's blood. Well, the ground is never going to give you anything again. There's a curse on you. Nothing from the ground will ever be yielded to you. And then he says, and you will be a fugitive and a wanderer. And with that, he's cast out from the presence of the Lord to be a fugitive and a wanderer, to have God's face hidden from him for the rest of time. And Abel's blood has demanded this justice, and Cain is driven out and driven away. Now, there's more even to think through in the text, but for the sake of time, here's what I want to ask you. As, you. as you get to that point, the lingering question is, fine, the blood is cried out for justice, and fine, Cain has been sent away and banished, exiled for his crime.
1: But the lingering
0: question is, what about the promise? What about the prophecy? What about the one? What about the offspring of the woman? What about the seed Of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. We thought it was Cain. He proves to be the son of the serpent. And even if we hoped it was Abel. He's dead. Abel had every appearance that he could be the one then. I mean he was righteous and he offered God his best. I mean everything was stacked up. But Abel's dead. So what of the promise? What of the seed? What of the one who's going to crush the serpent. And just in case you're reading this and you're thinking, well maybe one of Cain's sons, one of his descendants will turn the tide and and go against the trend. Maybe, Maybe it'll be resumed again in one of Cain's line. That's why you have verses 17 to 24. 17 to 24 is that genealogy, that mini genealogy that Jamie read so well with all those funny names, right? And you read that and you see lots of progress is happening they're inventing culture and they're using tools and they're building cities and you're thinking maybe 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 lots of things are happening but 17 to 24 is there to let you know it's not happening because in verses 23 and 24 seven generations after Cain you get his great 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 grandson a guy named Lamech and seven is this number of Completion. So it's almost saying, here's what this line is worth. Here's the complete story of this line. You get this guy named Lamech in verses 23 and 24. And in verses 23 and 24, it says, Lamech said to his wives. By the way, he introduces polygamy to the world. So you can sort of see where this line is headed. Right? He said to his wives, because by the way, he took two of them. And he says to them, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. What a gentleman, right? You walk in and go, Ada and Zillah, you wives of Lamech, listen to me. Your husband is speaking. Listen to what I have to say. I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So here's what he's bragging and boasting to his two wives about. He's boasting to them saying, listen, a young buck came and bumped into me and I bumped him off. A young punk came and struck me and I killed him. And then he goes on to even boast and say this. God had worked out an arrangement with Cain offering him protection. He offered this murderer mercy and protection and said, there's going to be a sign on you. No one will touch you. If anyone does, I'll avenge you seven times. He goes so far as to say, Cain needed sevenfold vengeance. I will revenge myself 70 times sevenfold. (laughs) Cain needed God's protection. I don't need anyone's protection. My vengeance is 70 times that. You're four chapters into the Bible. It's like Benu said last week. I mean, the earth is just hours old. We are at best eight generations into human history and the whole world Is filled and corrupt with sin. Sin has wreaked havoc on everything. It's as if Genesis 3 shows you how sin took root in the heart of men, and Genesis 4 begins to show you the fruit of that root. Here's how this stuff plays out once sin comes into the heart of man God had created marriage, this perfect relationship between a man and a woman. They're singing love songs to each other, they're running around naked, everything is great. And now one chapter later, you've got polygamy already. God had created life. One chapter later, you've got senseless murder all over the place. And in all this narrative, here's the thing. It's almost like the seed is lost. It's almost like the promise is gone. We thought it was going to be Cain. He proved to be a serpent. Even if we hoped it would be Abel, He's dead. And there ain't no one from Cain's line who's going to live up to this either. And just when it seems like all hope is lost, verse 25 comes and begins to revive our hope. It's almost like a candle that's going to be just snuffed out and suddenly it begins to flicker a little bit because verse 25 says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son. You, You read that and you go... There it is, Eve's pregnant again. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son, and he named him, or he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Hope starts to flutter again. The the candle starts to pick up some intensity because you've got fresh hope. Eve gets pregnant again. There's the hope again of another seed, another son, another child, another offspring from the woman. You've got this boy, Seth. And Seth Road, listen to me. This is why this is so important. It's because if you read this story like I've read this story so much of my life, and the only thing you're looking for in this story are morals and lessons, you're going to miss so much. If the only thing you read here is, should I be like Cain or not? Should I be like Abel or not? Who am I supposed to be like in the story? If that's all you see from the story, you're going to miss so much. Are there morals here? Absolutely. Are there lessons here? Absolutely. In fact, you should ask yourself some of the questions this text will make you ask. Questions like, Does my offerings to God look like Abel's or Cain's? You should ask yourself that. You shouldn't weasel out from under that or ignore that. You should ask yourself, do I worship God with sacrifice and joy or do I give him scraps and leftovers and say you should be happy? You should ask yourself questions like, how am I dealing with sin? Because it's crouching at the door of my heart like a, raving foaming wolf and, and am I mastering it or is it so often mastering me am I ruling over it or is it devouring me you should be asking yourself questions like is my heart nursing bitterness and grudges towards the ables in my life brothers and sisters who I'm supposed to love and yet deep down I've got this hatred for them that's brewing and growing, and do I see my heart flippant and cold asking questions like, am I their keeper? Am I their babysitter? In fact, the Holy Spirit may use any one of those questions like a laser on your heart, even now. And don't wiggle out from under it. Don't try and escape it or avoid it or ignore it. The Holy Spirit is pressing you with one of those because He wants to do surgery on your heart. There's a disease growing there. And the Holy Spirit can use this story even now to get there. There's morals. There's lessons. But if that's all you see, you miss so much. Because there is someone's shadow looming over Genesis 4. And and you can't help but see that Genesis 4 is getting you ready for someone else. Genesis 4 is getting you ready for the one. It's getting you ready for the one that Eve was waiting for. So that finally you could look at it and go, now, here it is. Here he is. We've gotten him with the help of the Lord. Genesis 4 is getting you ready for the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And it's not Cain. And it's not Abel. And it's not Seth. But wouldn't you know, Seth's name shows up again. Except this time, it's in Luke 3. And the name of Seth shows up in the genealogy of Jesus. Because when Luke is starting to write that Jesus was the son of so-and-so, who was the son of so-and-so, who was the son of of so-and-so, and that list goes real long until it gets to who was the son of Seth, who was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. Don't you see, the point of this story isn't, let's all be good like Abel. The point of the story is, we all needed a better Abel. The point of the story is, we needed Jesus. We needed an Abel that could die and come back from the dead. We needed Jesus. Now listen to me, don't miss this. Abel is the righteous one, the innocent one who offers an acceptable sacrifice to God and is murdered by someone who hates him and his blood cries out from beyond the grave, justice, this was wrong, make it right, God. But Jesus, Jesus is also the righteous one, the innocent one who offers not just an acceptable sacrifice but offers himself as the perfect sacrifice. And who is hated and killed. And his blood cries out from beyond the grave. And it shouts mercy for his murderers. His blood shouts they are not right. Make them right. His blood shouts they are wrong. This is wrong. Make it right God. This is the point. This is why Hebrews 12, 24 says, Now we come to Jesus, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's what the scripture says, that the blood of Abel spoke a word, justice, but the blood of Jesus speaks an even better word, mercy. This is the point that Abel's blood, hear me, meant that Cain was condemned. Jesus' blood means that we can be forgiven. Cain, Abel's blood, meant that his brother was now cast out as an enemy. Jesus' blood means that his enemies are welcomed in as brothers. Abel's blood means that Cain needs to be driven away from the presence of God. Jesus' blood means we're welcomed in and accepted into the presence of God. By Abel's blood, the sinner was punished. By Jesus' blood... All the sinners are saved. Abel's great, but Jesus is better. Abel's great, but Jesus is better. Here's the point. I'm reading this story, and I'm trying so hard to be like Abel. The problem is, if there's one in the two that I look like, I look much more like Cain. And I don't know about you, but as I survey the story, I begin to see, you know what I really find? I know what it's like to give half-hearted offerings to God and think he should be happy. I know what it's like to have temptation crouching at my door and it ripped me to shreds because I give in all the time.
1: I know what it's like to harbor
0: bitterness and hatred for people I'm supposed to love, brothers and sisters. I'm trying to be able and I can't help but see that I am Cain. And this story would be the most depressing thing in the world for me, except that there's good news. There's a better Abel who can save Cain. The first Abel condemned Cain. The second Abel, the better Abel, rescues Cain's, saves Cain's, loves the Cain's, brings the Cain's in, and makes them family. There's hope in the story because the better Abel spoke a better word with his blood for all the half-hearted, cheapskate worshipers, for all the nursing bitterness and grudges canes, for all the sin-conquered folks in the room. And, and here's the last thing I want to say, and then I'll be done. If you get that, you begin to see, you don't have to read this story and pick either morals and lessons or pick Jesus. You, you get both. And in fact, what you begin to see, it's by seeing Jesus that I can live out the morals and the lessons. You have to get this. It's by seeing Jesus that my heart can actually be unlocked to keep the morals and the lessons. You know why? What on earth is going to help a cheapskate worshiper like me who gives God my scraps and my leftovers except to see he knew I was a cheapskate and still broke the bank for me? What's going to change my heart except to see he knew I was a cheapskate, a half-hearted worshiper, scrap giver. And still, he bought me till he had nothing left to give. He bought me with his blood. And when I finally get that kind of expensive love for me, it's going to finally move my heart to go, I can't give him scraps. He's better than that. What on earth is going to help me fight the wolf at the door? Except to realize... That wolf has torn me up every time. Except now, the same spirit of the better Abel, who raised Abel from the dead, now lives in me. Don't you get it? The serpent slayer now lives in me. The serpent crusher is in me. I don't have to fight this as though this is going to be about my willpower. His power, the one, he lives inside me, giving me power. Or what on earth is going to help me get over the grudges and the bitterness and the hatred I have towards the Abels in my life except to see and realize I'm Cain and he doesn't have a grudge towards me. He doesn't have any bitterness towards me. In fact, he's got nothing but love for me even though I'm Cain. How am I going to keep hating Abel? That's when you begin to see seeing Jesus unlocks the lessons empowers the morals so that you can actually live this out. Abel's great. Jesus is better. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, we would ask that you would be our great hero and we would put all our trust and our hope in you. Our hope not in ourselves being able to do a little bit better, but our hope in you who is better for us. And we pray that you would help us in some of the places that the Holy Spirit may be particularly pointing out to us. And we ask that the Holy Spirit would do his work, the surgery on our hearts that's required, and that he would lift up for our hearts a vision of Jesus so that we would lie there and let you do the work knowing there's good news. It's Jesus. We don't have to be afraid. He's not out to hurt us or condemn us or ruin us. He's out to bring us life by the one who gave his life for us. Do more than we know to ask, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. The Lord is faithful.